3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And a very, very good morning. You are listening to 3CR Breakfast. Evan Wallace is my name and it's a pleasure to have your company on Monday the 14th of March. And just start by saying happy Labor Day and acknowledging all the incredible work done by workers across Australia to support and fight for labor rights, decent working conditions and acknowledging that the fight very much still goes on. It's wonderful to have you listening this morning and hello to all you early birds that were listening to Think Again before this. If you want to hear the next edition of Think Again, tune in to 3CR at uh, 10am on Friday, 3cr.org.au as well too is another way where you might be able to find all of our excellent shows, all of our programming and if you want to catch up on any breakfast shows as well, that's your home. We have a loaded show for you today. There's a good number of interviews. You're going to be hearing from Stephen Duckett, who is the health director at the Graddon Institute, talking about out-of-pocket healthcare costs. Also to Lurian DeMello on the latest in the international energy crisis. We'll talk with Kim Usher, who's going to be addressing natural disasters and domestic violence and finish off by speaking with Peter Martin about the impact that sanctions are having on Russia and how they might be influencing, yeah, influencing, well, world politics, the international economy. Looking forward to that interview. Also have a number of great tunes as well, hearing from the likes of Emma Swift, Josh Teske and Ash Grunwald, Cedric Burnside, Mama Kin and Spender. Really uh, good mix, bit of blues in there today, I would say, uh, a bit of a blues emphasis. So, hope uh, if there are a few blues fans out there, that that is, um, yeah, hits the right sweet spot for you. How was your weekend? I had a good one. It was um, very, very sunny. It was lovely being outside. Went for a bit of a walk down near the Maroondah Dam on Saturday and always love looking at the wonderful views of the Yarra Ranges from um, that part of the world. And then yesterday, well, yesterday was a big highlight for the last year or so. Um, we've been looking after a hive of bees and it's taken us a while, but donned the ET suits and put on the uh, the full B outfit. It went out and uh, opened up the uh, the hive, and oh my goodness, there was so much honey, many many bees. I don't exactly know what I was expecting, but there were thousands upon thousands of bees in there, making liters and liters of honey. We literally just scratched the surface. There was a honeycomb that was just uh, hanging off the top of the hive and uh, scraping uh, the side of it um, lots more to, to extract but pretty pretty exciting and um, uh, apologies to all the vegans out there it definitely isn't um, necessarily a um, 
vegan-friendly exercise, but a very fun exercise as well too, I must say. And the good news, um, well, the good news for, for both of us is that we weren't stung. That was pretty positive that um, there were no bee stings involved in the, in the process. So that was um, somewhat unexpected. I had heard that no matter how hard you try, always expect a, a sting. All right, let's get today's music programming underway. This is from an album that I really, really adore. It's Jimmy Little's 1999 Messenger album. I think it's close enough to an Australian equivalent of Johnny Cash's American covers. They're beautiful tunes. This is one of my favourites. It's Under the Milky Way. The horn section in there is just delightful. And uh, you're all delightful for listening. It's 3CR Breakfast. Sometimes when this place gets kind of Sound of the breath fades with the light Think about loveless fascination Under the Milky Way tonight Lower the curtain down
This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. That was Jimmy Little with Under the Milky Way. I forgot about the slide guitar in there. How sweet was that? That's a treat when that comes in about midway through that tune. I love a bit of slide guitar for atmosphere. And when it's just done with that level of subtlety like you just heard, my goodness, it's beautiful. 3CR Breakfast, where you'll hear Alternative Current Affairs. Evan Wallace is my name. It's 7.09am. Despite national security, climate change and cost of living pressures likely to be the dominant issues at this year's election, you can be sure that the Labor Party will look to win votes through its reputation as a perceived better manager of health policy and Medicare. But one thing I'm very doubtful about is either party putting forward any ambitious health policy on any front. That's why we need organisations like the Grattan Institute, an independent Melbourne-based think tank that do the hard work, and hopefully their ideas will be picked up. I spoke with their health director, Stephen Duckett, about their latest report, Not So Universal, How to Reduce Out-of-Pocket Healthcare Payments. This is part one of my conversation with Stephen, which was recorded on Friday. Stephen, a lot of people have heard the term universal health, or perhaps in an Australian context, Medicare for all. Before we look at this excellent new report released by the Grattan Institute, tell me, how do you define universal health? Basically, universal health care and universal health insurance is all about making sure all Australians are treated equally, have equal access, and can go and see a doctor, get pharmaceuticals when they need it. Great definition there, and as the name of the report suggests, not so universal, out-of-pocket healthcare payments, Australia's health system is maybe only part of the way there? Yeah, so there's really great parts about the Australian healthcare system. If if you need to go see a GP, 90% of, of GP consultations in Australia are bulk billed, which means you have no out-of-pocket costs whatsoever. But that the GP system, even though it's so important, is not the whole of the healthcare system. You might need to have an x-ray, you might need to have a script, you might need to go and see a specialist. Each of those different elements of the healthcare system have more out-of-pockets than the GP, the primary medical care system. So that's why we said it's not so universal because half a million people, for example, said, look, I can't afford to fill this script. Uh, and you know they, they miss out on medication for example, in a year uh, because of costs. If individuals 
aren't accessing sort of proper support that they need and the barrier to seeing a medical specialist is really high, what does that mean in terms of overall health implications for the wider community? Yeah, but it, it, it's really interesting because if you, if you don't have that script, for example, that the doctor has prescribed, you've gone to see a doctor and said, and the doctor said, look, I think you need to be treated and the medication is the right thing to do. If you don't, if you can't able to fill that script, then it's almost certain you're going to have worse conditions down the, down the line. You're, you're going to get sicker and you might end up going to hospital and the cost of a hospital admission is way more than the cost of that medication in normal circumstances. And so it's not only is it bad for you that you're missing out on this script, it's bad for the health system as a whole because we're now spending more money to treat someone that could have been, who could have been treated earlier, better, with, if, the, if there weren't for this prohibitive co-payment that they couldn't afford to pay. And on that prohibitive co-payment, thinking specifically about mm, the cost that might be attached to seeing a psychiatrist or a dermatologist or a cardiologist, and no, I'm not necessarily sure of the order of the expense that's uh, attached to all of those three um, specialist areas there, but have we reached a point, Stephen, where those out-of-pockets are so high when it comes to individuals uh, receiving support and care from those specialists? So I think that there's been a number of things that have happened. When Medicare first started, the rate of bulk billing amongst GPs was, was moderate, but low. And slowly over time, with a couple of hiccups along the way, there's been a substantial increase in bulk billing amongst GPs. And so it's now, as I said, 90%. We haven't seen the same transformation to the same level amongst, for example, medical specialists. And so out of hospital, uh, about almost 50% of medical specialty uh, consultations are bulk billed, but that means half are not bulk billed. And so somehow or other, we haven't seen the same evolution, the same increase in bulk billing amongst medical specialists that we've seen amongst GPs. Do you think that's because it just hasn't been there when it comes to issues that are frequently debated within Australian political discourse. Part of it maybe could be the fact that um, specialists might be happy enough with their current financial arrangements and or ways of ways of working. Is there any sort of um, are there any specific factors that you think might be behind that that lack of reform or um, similarity to that movement to having more bulk billing when it comes to seeing GPs? What do you think are the real motivations or factors behind a lack of appetite for reform in that area so far? So I think to some extent medical specialists are forgotten about. When we think about Medicare we often think about GPs and hospitals and forget this other significant component of the health system. We similarly forget about allied health as well, physios and psychologists. So there's a bit of just plain neglect. There's also a bit of uh, possibly underfunding that, you know, one of the, I mentioned there was a hiccup in, in GPs and the, the bulk billing rate went down for a little bit, but the government actually changed the rules and said instead of paying 85% of the schedule fee, we'll now pay 100% of the schedule fee. And so there was a bit of an uplift there. And so there's been a, some changes along the way in general practice. Unfortunately, they froze the fees for a while, which didn't help, but there's been a policy attention is my point. There hasn't been the same policy attention to medical specialists. 
The third element that you might think about is maybe the medical specialists are a bit too greedy. Maybe they're looking for too much money. And so, you know, the, the gap between what a medical specialist earns and what a general practitioner earns is quite significant. And we should be saying, what do we value in the health system? You know, we really value the primary medical care side of things and we really want to strengthen general practice. And maybe we need to be saying to the specialists, hang about, you know, you are earning a very, very decent income. And we're not saying you should be, you know, not getting any money at all. But, you know, let's think about what the income expectation should be. And we ought to be actually beginning to balance those things and actually say, yeah, we've, we've got to make sure you get a decent income, but sometimes these incomes are, you know, atmospheric, you know, way up there in the, in the stratosphere. And uh, maybe that's a bit too much. They're prohibitive and, and they can also be incredibly exorbitant and just unaffordable for, for so many Australians, particularly yeah, those who are most disadvantaged in the communities. Just remaining on specialists, it was interesting to read, but unfortunately not too surprising that the specialty with the highest out-of-pocket costs were psychiatrists. And reading through the report and, and reflecting on that, strikes me as being particularly alarming given what we know at the moment about where Australia is in 2022 and the need to access robust mental health care. Absolutely. And it's even more interesting when you realise that the first visit to a psychiatrist gets paid way more than the first visit to a cardiologist or a, uh, or a dermatologist. So, you know, they're already starting from a, from a high plane and still there's huge amounts of out-of-pockets. And it's certainly uh, that, you know, the mental health system in Australia does need a lot of uh, fixing up. And even if you're not, you know, your GP might give you a mental health plan, and then that means you can go to a psychologist instead of going to a psychiatrist. And, and, and even if you go to the psychologist, huge out-of-pockets. So, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in addressing this problem. Before turning to the report's recommendations, if nothing changes, what are we likely to see? Is it just more barriers to accessing healthcare? Are costs going to continue to increase? Tell me what happens if, if nothing changes. Well, what today we're in a situation where everybody doesn't get a fair go. Some people can afford to get healthcare and some people can't afford to see a specialist, to get pharmaceuticals, to see a psychologist. And I don't think that's the Australia we want to live in. We're in Australia where we think there's everybody. So something as important as healthcare, we ought, ought, ought to be able to get it. And I think that's the tragedy that we have to address. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. Evan Wallace is my name, where you're listening to an interview with Stephen Duckett on out-of-pocket healthcare costs. We'll pick up the conversation after the next tune. This is the wonderful Emma Swift... It happens to be a Dylan cover. It's Queen Jane approximately. She's been down at Port Ferry. I hope you enjoy this tune. It's 7.19am. Creations. Won't he 
That song has all the wonderful layers in there, like a good sponge cake, perhaps. It's Emma Swift with Queen Jane, approximately. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. I'm Evan. Good to have your company this morning. Let's resume the conversation with Stephen Duckett as we dive into the policy proposals that the Grattan Institute has advanced to reduce out-of-pocket health care costs in their new report, Not So Universal. 
This is part two of the conversation and hopefully those wonderful percussion noises and tunes from that last song that you just heard by Emma Swift. Well, perhaps that uh, that gets you into the mood to hear where we should be heading in order to make our healthcare system more accessible. It's 3CR Breakfast. I'm Evan Wallace. One of the centrepiece recommendations for the report is to improve efficiency and expand specialist outpatient services. What exactly would this involve and, and why is this so important? So the, 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 if you need to see a specialist, there are two ways of seeing it. You can go to a specialist in their private rooms and, or you can go to a public hospital and go to public hospital outpatients. If you, you know that if you go to public hospital outpatients, you're going to have to wait a long time. For some, so only two states publish the information in a, in a comparable form, uh, Victoria and Queensland, and for some specialties in Queensland, you might be waiting two years since in a number of places in Victoria, specialties, you're waiting three months. And so, you know, if, if you're a bit worried about what you've got, you don't want to be waiting three months to actually even get an appointment. So the, the public hospital outpatient is the waiting times are way too long. And so what we said in the report is, look, you need to actually address this. You need to try and get more people through the public hospital outpatient system. There are two ways of doing it. One is to actually provide more services, and we said you ought to be expanding those services. And the other is to make the service more efficient. And so one of the issues about outpatients is in some cases, the outpatient clinic hangs on to the patient. So instead of the GP refers the person to outpatients, the specialist or the specialist in training sees the person in outpatients and then says this is what really ought to happen and then refer and then sends them back to the GP to implement a treatment plan what happens is the the uh, specialist clinic hangs on and says well come back to the clinic in three months or come back to the clinic in six months rather than going back to the GP so this is what you call new patients on the one hand and review patients on the other and what's really a, a critical measure that ought to be addressed is this new review ratio. How many, how many times does the average patient come back? And the fewer times they come back, the more you send them back to the GP, the more new patients you can have. So we say you've got to be doing both. You've got to be improving the efficiency, seeing more new patients and fewer review patients, as well as expanding the number of patients all up. I think that sounds like a, a really sensible recommendation. You've also called for co-located bulk billing specialist clinics. What would this look like? So what, what we said was there are two ways of seeing a specialist. One is the public hospital outpatients we've just talked about. Mm -hmm. The other is uh, seeing a specialist in their private rooms. But what we're saying is there ought to be a variant of that. And so the Commonwealth Government ought to subsidise more specialists to provide bulk billing services. And what we what we had in mind was you go to a low income part of Australia, low income, low rates of bulk billing of specialists, and you do it, you co-locate with the general practice which bulk bills, and you say, we're gonna have a cardiologist or an endocrinologist who is going to bulk bill attached to this clinic. And this does a couple of things. First of all, it makes the specialty available uh, when people might otherwise have had to go to public hospital outpatients or not not go to a specialist at all. But because it's co-located with the general practice, it helps to skill up the general practice. You're more likely to refer the patients back. So someone with diabetes, for example, sees the GP and the, and they become, the person, patient becomes unstable in terms of their management of the diabetes, a bit more complex. 
So the GP refers to the endocrinologist in the very same clinic. The endocrinologist looks at the patient, assesses them, blah, 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 and says, this is to the GP, this is what needs to happen. So they don't have to see the patient again until something goes wrong again. I think that's brilliant. Uh, and also on that too, Stephen, is there a way too that where you might not even have to have the patient seeing the specialist? So uh, in the report, you've talked about secondary consultations too. Uh, so where um, those patients, they see the GP, the GP gets the information that they need and then, and then they go from there. Yeah, so the idea is, in, it's a, it's a, this is another way of strengthen, strengthening general practice. And what we're saying is, one of the ways to reduce the co-payments that a person might pay is the patient doesn't actually see the, the specialist at all. The GP talks to the specialist and says, this is the patient that I've got. This is the circumstances of the patient. If you were seeing this patient, what's the sort of things, the tests you might do or the, uh, the treatment you might initiate and so on? And so the, the specialist then gives advice to the GP about how to handle that patient and the GP implements that and the patient may not need to go and see the specialist face to face at all, but the specialist helps and advises the GP uh, so the patient doesn't go and the, and the patient but still can get the benefit of the advice to the GP. So it's what we're calling a secondary consultation that the, the primary consultation is with the GP but there's a secondary that the, the, the specialist advises the GP. How do you think we should get a proposal like that up and running? What, what would you suggest for that to, to practically occur? What are the levers that need to be pulled and uh, what needs to be tried out to really build this into Australia's healthcare system? Well, there's a couple of ways of answering that, Evan. There's a, an election coming up, and so we ought to have the, uh, the major parties saying, yep, we recognise there's a problem. In, in medical special, getting access to specialists, so we're going to do something about it. What we've suggested in our report is that in the first instance, you might do this as a, as a pilot scheme. So there are these organisations around the country, 31 organisations around the country called primary healthcare networks. I chair the board of one of these, I should declare, in Eastern Melbourne. And, and we already run a secondary consultation service for psychiatry. And what we're saying is, you look at 10 of these and you, you say which ones have got low income areas, which ones have got low rates of bulk billing, and you try it. And you see how much does it cost per service and so on. And so you, you start and evaluate it as a new way of addressing this problem. Do you get specialists to sign up? Do you get trainees involved as well so you can expand the workforce? You know, and what do people think of it? And so we've, we've proposed a, a pilot scheme of this in 10 primary health networks around the country. Are there any, any other recommendations in the report that you'd like to draw attention to? Yeah, I think there are a number of others. Um, we suggested, for example, there'd be more information to GPs about what various uh, specialists are charging so they can, that can help them in their, in their guidance to, to their patients. Uh, and so, you know, I think um, all of these things, there's, there's, it, it's a complex issue and so there's not a, one simple solution. So we've got to look and a number of these things and see if we can actually improve the overall working of the system uh, to try and make it better. Finally, Stephen, you mentioned that it's a, an election year this year and 
it doesn't seem like it's necessarily going to be uh, an election that is rich on um, either party adopting significant reform proposals, but potentially there's going to be a, a few um, flashy headline policies. Anything that you'd really love to see either major party advance as one of those sort of uh, headline um, uh, showstopper policies at this year's election? So we recognise that no one's in a big spending mood at the moment. We've just spent a whole lot of money on, on COVID appropriately. So uh, not all of it wisely spent, but that's what was done. So we think that, so we tailored our recommendations so that they would be as little as possible for as much as possible. And we said, look, if the government increases its spend by about 700 million or so, consumers can save a billion dollars on out of pockets. So this is not a bad ratio. And and there are other things we recommended as well. And some of this spending is by state government, some by Commonwealth government. But what we're trying to do is to actually really improve the health system and I think of all of our recommendations, the, for the Commonwealth Government, the, the bulk billing clinics is the most important and that's what I really hope that they would pick up. Stephen, really appreciate your time and analysis. It's great to have you on the show and, and thank you for putting together such a, a thoughtful and hopefully impactful report. Thanks very much, Evan. And I'll place a link to the Graddon Institute's report on our website, 3cr.org.au. It's Monday, the 14th of March, 7.33 a.m. As I said at the start of the show, we have a bit of a blues theme today on 3CR Breakfast. Here's Josh Teske and Ash Grunwald from their 2020 album with Push the Blues Away. It's the title track of that album and enjoy. Don't you know I'm trying, trying to find a way A way to make it work, make it go away But the blues is here to stay But you know I'm always trying to push these blues away Hey now baby, can you see just what I've done? Hey now baby, can you see just what I've done? I treated you mean, I pushed you away But the blues is here to stay You know I'm always trying to push these blues away Now I'm walking around the circus getting lost in every time Now I'm walking around the circus getting lost in every time I've been blown around by a big old wind since that day I let you down the Big old blues Keeps coming on down You know I keep trying Trying to find a way Yeah Don't you know I'm trying Trying to find a way A way to make it work Make it go away But the blues is here to stay don't you know I'm trying to push these blues away?
I know I went wrong And now, baby, can you see I know I went wrong There's a river in me, it's pulling me away It's trying to float me away But there's nothing in the water gonna wash these blues away Don't know why I'm trying to push so hard away Don't know why I'm trying to push so hard away Well, I'm pushing you and you're pushing me back But nothing pushes the blues away But you know I'm trying to push these blues away Head back Sweet and two of Australia's real champions of the blues scene, Josh Teske and Ash Grunwald with Push the Blues Away. You are listening to 3CR Breakfast. It's been five months since I last talked with Lurion DeMello, a senior lecturer in the Department of Applied Finance at Macquarie University. It was October last year and Lurion and I were discussing rising energy costs as demand for oil was surging, countries such as India and China were stockpiling on coal and Europe was facing a gas shortage. Following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we've seen prices further surge. It's a pleasure and also very good timing to have Lurian on the line to talk about the current status of the global energy market. Good morning to you, Lurian. Good morning. How are you? I'm going well. How are you doing this morning? Oh, I'm just just waking up. <laughs> I think that'll be you and uh, and a lot of Australia on on that note, um, especially where there's public holidays as well too. Lurian, let's start with oil. Over the past six months, we've seen the cost of Brent crude oil increase by sixty six percent from around the last time we talked in October. It's increased from sixty eight dollars to surging over one hundred and twenty dollars per barrel. Should we be calling this a global oil crisis? Um, yeah, I mean, definitely, it's um, it's it's unprecedented sort of prices, you know, reminiscent of the 1970s uh, during the oil, Arab oil embargo. So, you know, prices have skyrocketed because you know there's fear that you know supply from Russia is going to be cut completely, and it's going to be you know a monumental task to get new supplies on board. I guess. Absolutely, I think there's going to be a, a huge effort. We've already seen. Um, countries um, sending out um, missions to the Middle East to try to uh, increase supply there and, and push um, and push that, and then also the US saying that they'll be um, pumping up more oil as well too. But when we last talked, the cost of oil was already on a steep rise. So I'm just curious from your perspective, Lurian, how much of this recent surge can we attribute to the Ukraine invasion? And how many other factors perhaps also might be contributing to yeah the current prices and the current um, demand that we're seeing? Yeah, um, the, I guess the, the the main reason why oil prices going up is due to the war. Mm. Um, it's also because you know uh, organisations like OPEC you know are not giving as much output. I mean they're sticking to their mandatory four hundred thousand barrels of output every time you know they meet. They they seem to not barge from that but can we really blame them um can they really physically produce enough output you know we have to keep in mind that you know when the on the onset of the pandemic you know there's a lot of demand that was destroyed and with that went 
a lot of investment as well. So for that production to come back online, it, it's going to be quite difficult. So the war premium definitely is, is the main component of the oil price, but it's also the fear you know, that uh, you know, not enough supply, alternative supplies will be found. Um, you know, countries like you know, the U.S. are going to even to Venezuela, and, and yeah, the Iran deal is kind of a bit shaky now after the missile attack in, in, in Iraq. So, so that there are even you know, worse problems now, I think, in terms of supply. Ah, it's raising all sorts of hairy human rights questions in the sense of mm, punishing, um, yeah, uh, that sense of, in one, in one sense, you have uh, countries looking to implement and coordinate sanctions upon Russia and the other time uh, turning to nations that have really, really dubious human rights records as well too. It's a, it's a bit of a conundrum as to what are the most important levers, what are, the, what are countries valuing, and then also balancing that against our need for, for energy as well too. Swapping from oil to gas... In Europe, we've seen natural gas prices increase by over 80% in the past year. Can you talk us through the current status of the international gas market? Yeah, look, um, you know, 40% of Europe's gas comes from Russia. And, you know, if you separate Germany and the UK, you know, they, they are each on its own pretty much. So the UK had, had gas, uh, surge in gas demand because, you know, they had very low wind and, and low um, solar energy uh, last year. So the demand for gas increased because the UK produces around 40% of its electricity from using gas. Um, they have done really well on the renewable side, but, you know, if, as they say, the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, you know, what's the alternative? And gas was the alternative. Uh, for Germany, you know, most of its gas comes through pipelines, whereas in the UK there are some pipelines that come in but most of it comes through, you know, LNG, through, through, through ships and so forth. So right now, um, you know, for Germany to find alternative sources besides the Russian gas, uh, it, it's extremely, you know, difficult. And that's why, you know, they're kind of reluctant to participate in these embargoes on, on, on banning, you know, Russian oil and gas. Absolutely. There's a much greater degree of dependence there. Um, well, and you mentioned the statistic there with, with gas and, and uh, Europe and the EU receiving 40% of its gas from um, from Russia and then also to higher level of dependency with respect to oil. And that's why those countries haven't joined the embargoes implemented by countries such as the US and Canada and uh, even the UK, who's um, agreed to phase out uh, oil, Russian oil by the end of the year and Australia also putting a Russian oil ban on as well too. As a degree of dependency there, and on the theme of dependency, do you think that this is a, a real wake-up call for nations to accelerate the transition to renewable energy? Or we talked about the need to potentially look at other forms of energy, perhaps nuclear is an option. What's your thoughts as to what um, this current precarious dynamic shows about how countries should be prioritising uh, reform of uh, available energy to them? Yeah, um, look, Europe has done fairly well in, in terms of nuclear. So I, thought, I think we'll speak about that because you know France has committed to actually increasing their nuclear energy capabilities, and whereas 
Germany has been retiring their nuclear plants you know, ahead of time. So this is kind of a bit baffling for me because, you know, to find alternative sources, I mean, Germany still uses a fair bit of coal. And, and we have to keep in mind it's great to have a, a, you know, a renewable energy target or, or certain uh, projects that, you know, that harness renewable energy. But to replace uh, gas and, and to replace coal in terms of, you know, electricity generation, in terms of industrial use, in terms of heating, um, you know, no amount of renewable energy, in my opinion, is going to replace that anytime soon, unless, as you correctly mentioned, you know, nuclear is a big part of the of that uh, solution. Yeah, and it's definitely a significant part of the European energy landscape. Just uh, thinking, though, about reports that have come through from Ukraine over the last number of uh, days with attacks on different nuclear power stations, and there's, yeah, definitely a scariness that, that's attached to uh, how nuclear power stations um, could potentially present themselves as as targets in future conflicts. And it does seem like a very different debate, though, in Europe with respect to nuclear power being a very um, valid uh, option for, for so many countries. And as you mentioned, um, France looking at uh, increasing its um, uh, use of nuclear power as part of its overall energy usage as well. Going from Europe to Australia where we're speaking to lots of Australian audiences here. And um, we know that many listeners who are tuning into 3CR Breakfast this morning will be feeling the pinch of astronomical petrol prices. And that's definitely been one of the um, immediate outcomes for Australians following the invasion of Ukraine. How concerned are you, though, about the broader impact that Russia's invasion of Ukraine might have on the Australian economy? So looking just beyond petrol prices, are you concerned about how this might impact the yeah um, the health of Australia's economy right now? Yeah, um, look, the impacts are pretty much being felt globally. Uh, with petrol prices, you know, $2.50 is not, is not out of the question, in my opinion. And, you know, places like in India... Um, or, or even in Germany, for example, you know, petrol is three dollars. If you convert it to Aussie dollars, three has been three dollars a liter, and this just for standard unleaded. But the biggest danger, I think, for Australia and globally is diesel, and and the cost of diesel, you know, is now two dollars a liter, and this is going to have, you know, I guess it's it's going to feed through to the to the food supply chain, um, the you know, the trucking companies are going to increase their costs of deliveries. Uh, that's that's danger number one. Um, the, the second danger is, uh, I guess, you know, oil prices, you know, remaining high for longer and, and Australians, you know, feeling the pinch of the Bowser longer. So so how long it's going to prolong, it, it, it all depends. You know, if the war ends in the next couple of months, I think the prices will correct a bit, even though, you know, Russian oil is not going to be welcomed back from the market, I don't think, anytime soon. So there's still the ongoing supply concerns that are going to linger on. So unfortunately, I think, um, you know, we will be paying higher petrol prices. Lorraine, on that, when thinking about the supply chains that you just mentioned there, are you worried that this energy crisis could very well turn into a financial crisis? Um, look, you know, I think, I think it, it's quite possible, but um, as we have seen, you know, the stock markets, you know, kind of crashed a bit. Um, but 
you know, in terms of financial from the stock market's perspective or if there's some sort of repercussions in the banking industry. I mean, it, it all depends. Um, so I don't think we're, we're going to end up at that at that stage. Um, but certainly, as I said, you know, the cost of living is going to increase. Um, you know, fertilizer, for example, um, the cost of fertilizer is going to the roof. And, and so this is going to impact Australia, perhaps, you know, who's, is a predominantly a commodity exporter. So, so it hasn't hit here yet, but it's been faced all over Europe. Um, so I think it's going to have more problems, you know, on, on Australia's, you know, actual you know, agricultural output rather than having a financial crisis as such. Lurian, really appreciate your analysis this morning. Thanks so much for speaking with me on 3CR Breakfast. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. That was Lurian DeMello, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Applied Finance at Macquarie University. It is 7.48am. The next artist, you'll know him from his beautiful and whimsical tunes from Toy Story. This song, well, you might have heard this song in a few different other Australian settings, particularly if you've been on an aeroplane sometime over the last 10 years. It's a stunning tune. It deserves to be played uh, well, in its entirety, it's uh, a song by Mr. Randy Newman. Love the piano that's here. Uh, love the message. It's a beautiful love tune. And, well, the world is an uncertain place. It's a great message to hold on to on a Monday morning. 3CR Breakfast. Something in your eyes Makes me want to lose myself Makes me want to lose myself in your arms Something in your voice Makes my heart beat fast Hope this feeling lasts Rest of my life If you knew
Beautiful, absolutely beautiful tune. Feels like home by Randy Newman. I think in my excitement uh, for uh, putting that song to air, I've been hoping to put that song to air for a number of weeks now and just a few different things have jumped up and we've shuffled things around in the show and yeah, I actually forgot to give you its name. So that is its name, Feels Like Home. It's from his album Harps and Angels. And it's a stunning, stunning piece of music. I really love that accordion at the end and then also the brushes on the snare and the string section as it comes in. Perfect piece of music. It's 3CR Breakfast. Coming up after the next tune, we're going to be speaking with Kim Usher about the relationship between domestic violence and natural disasters. An important topic to talk through, especially in the context of what Australia is experiencing right now in March 2022. Last week, I saw the wonderful Mr. Cedric Burnside. It had been a number of years since I'd seen him perform live, probably about seven, I would say. I saw him at WOMAD 2016 when he was very much just playing on the drums as part of the Cedric Burnside project. He's since branched out more or less as a solo artist and he's been travelling around Australia over the last month or so and I think that tour continues Last week, he was at a whole bunch of different Melbourne venues, and the one I saw him at was the Northcote Social Club. Excellent acoustics in there, really good atmosphere. It's a bit of a crane. The tallest person in the room decided to uh, park himself right in front of Cedric, but 
that happens. It's all part of a music gig, and it was good when Cedric was uh, standing up playing the electric guitar, and uh, that meant that I could see him, and, and also my mum too, who's a little bit smaller than me. And wow, we had a good time, really fun time, good music, and great energy as well too. This song, well, it's called Love Is The Key, and it's from his album from 2021, so last year, I Be Trying. It's a stunner, and uh, it's got, well, it's got that good energy feel to it. There's a few sort of African reggae reference in there as well, too. Moves along. It's a good album. Cedric Burnside on 3CR Breakfast. Coming up next, it's Kim Usher on Domestic Violence and Natural Disasters. Evan Wallace is my name. Good to have you company this morning. All I feel with love is the key. I wish everybody in this world could be Stop the hurt and pain And love again I Say sorry for what you did To family and friends I'm loving Loving Is the key I'm It's a bluesy morning on 3CR Breakfast with Cedric Burnside and love is the key. Evan Wallace is my name and it is great to have your company on the show. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been quite a week in Australia and actually number of weeks and it's been all too absorbing looking at the, the terrible impact that the floods are having in northern New South Wales and southern Queensland. From this vantage point of Melbourne, we can be somewhat removed from the feelings and the grief that's attached to 
uh, what's occurring right now along the eastern seaboard in Australia. But the impact is is very real. It's very dreadful. Um, key number of listeners would have family and friends who have been impacted by the awful floods. And 3CR sends our love, support, sympathy to everyone who's been affected over the last number of weeks. Kim Usher is a professor of nursing at the University of New England. Last week, she wrote an excellent article for the conversation drawing attention to the relationship between domestic violence and natural disasters. As we all grieve for communities in northern New South Wales and southern Queensland, it's essential that we think through what comes next for community members in this part of Australia. Thanks for joining us this morning, Kim. Good morning. Kim, can you talk us through why domestic violence is more likely to occur following natural disasters? Well, first of all, we know that it is more likely to occur, and we've known that for some time. But often um, after after disasters, you know, there's a, a, a change, or even during disasters, that it can occur as well. But um, there's rise in tension. You know, people are uh, often um, overcome or overwhelmed by the, the loss that they've experienced or uh, by the uncertainty that's going on. Uh, sometimes it's to do with the concerns about what the future holds. So when people have lost their properties or lost their livelihoods, um, particularly around uh, finances, so income is a big thing, a big factor in it. So that's there that they're sort of motivated. And then we know that also after disasters, people are with a higher incidence of people with uh, mental health issues. So, men, you know, there's a, mental health is a, a big problem following disasters. So all of those things... Uh, compound uh, and, and are related to the in, the incidence of domestic violence. And that level of, of grief and that extra sense of vulnerability that follows from disaster, something that you uh, looked at within your article focusing on um, the rise in domestic violence that's uh, followed uh, bushfire responses and then also to some of the um, impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. So, it's a it's a pattern that's unfortunately um, very very frequent and been playing out far too uh, far too often in Australia over the last number of years. Yeah, that's for sure. And um, we found that with um, with the COVID uh, pandemic, uh, which is just another form of a disaster, uh, the the rise in domestic violence has um, it's, it's just been incredible, and um, communities are struggling now to. Uh, support women in particular, and so we've had um, increasing calls for services for domestic violence, increases in um, the need for uh, refuge, so women looking for places in um, women's shelters and so forth, it's just increased uh, exponentially, so um, that's been a big problem as a result of COVID. It'll be the same sort of thing that the outcome will be after these floods. We, we know and uh, we just know we can predict that that's what's going to happen and we need to be better prepared in the future. You mentioned their women's shelters and we know that when women find themselves displaced and relying on temporary shelter that they're more likely to experience violence. Can you talk us through this relationship? Well, often what happens is, um, in well, particularly in um, developing countries, we know that um, when there are uh, disasters there, women are much more vulnerable and um, often end up, you know, in 
shelters with lots of other people, and the same as here with the floods, we've seen that. So uh, when when you have a whole lot of people together in, in shelters and so forth, women are, are vulnerable for uh, violence, and so that we know that escalates, and so that's when women are often um, vulnerable to uh, sexual assaults by people that are unknown to them, so not necessarily family members uh, being violent towards them. It can be uh, unknown people. In your excellent article, which we'll put a link to on our website, 3cr.org.au, and I'll also post a link to it on Twitter, you've written that governments need to have a two-pronged prevention strategy, one that is focused on entire disaster-affected communities and another that targets people who experience domestic violence after disasters. Could you explore this um, proposal a bit more for us? I think the important thing is we need to be much better prepared for these sorts of things. We know they're going to happen, um, but as a you know, as, as a country, we're really very underprepared. And so, what needs to happen in the future is that there needs to be strategies so that once um, a disaster occurs, that there's a rollout of strategies that sort of some sort of mitigation to try and help prevent some of these things from occurring. So. We know that one of the biggest things, one of the biggest factors related to um, domestic violence after disasters is finance. So we need to be much quicker at allowing, uh, at, at, at enabling people, so making sure that they know that they'll be supported with funds um, to continue to provide for their families and so forth. Um, but we also need a longer-term strategy so that there needs to be local services that women can go to that are in their community, that there's a local people who know what's needed and who are trained to look for the signs of domestic violence and can enact and uh, put support in place for women who are affected by domestic violence. I also thought it was really pertinent how you flagged the role of first-line responders in responding to domestic violence following natural disasters. What more do you think we need to do to support them to respond to concerning signs and recognise red flags in these environments? No, we need a lot more education, that's for sure. Um, at the moment, there's not enough people are aware of the fact that, you know, that domestic violence isn't a likely outcome of disasters. So we need a strategy where we have uh, a lot more community education and a lot more, uh, uh, you know, awareness. But then also we need a lot of uh, locally trained people. That would be a much better strategy for the future going forward. Kim, really appreciate you coming on to the show this morning. Thanks for writing such a great article and drawing attention to this really important issue and um, hope that you have a really good rest of the day. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. That was Kim Usher, Professor of Nursing from the University of New England. And if this conversation has raised any concerns for you or someone you know, there's the 1800 Respect National Helpline on 1800 737 732 or Lifeline on 13114. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter.
Next week is a real music week for me, and that'll kick off on Thursday night with the Whitlam's at the Corner Hotel. Love that venue and really, really love the band too. I saw Tim Friedman last year in Alice Springs, and it was a reminder just of how incredible his voice is. This has always been one of my favourite Whitlam's tunes. It's from their 2002 album, Torch the Moon. It's Royal in the Afternoon. It's 3CR Breakfast. Coming up after the Whitlam's, it's Peter Martin looking at economic sanctions, their impact, and Russia. Won't drink, won't smoke, won't get home at 100 o'clock. Nobody's going to satisfy me except you and the baby of the colour TV. Was always in my pride. And the goods are all right He's at home now Count the dough I'm standing here for another lost Ah, that song will definitely get your morning going. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. That was Royal in the Afternoon by the Whitlams. Gee, it's great that they're still playing music. Really excited about seeing them next week. It is 8.10am. Evan Wallace is my name. Wonderful to have your company. Top of about 28 degrees in Melbourne today. And hope you're having a good long weekend if you're in a position to be able to enjoy the day off. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we've seen over 2 million Ukrainians flee the country as the number of people killed in conflict continues to increase 
and cities come under increasing attack by Russian forces. Despite the pleas of Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, NATO has refused to implement a no-fly zone over Ukraine and has not engaged in direct military conflict. Instead, the response has been characterised by the transfer of significant military and financial aid, but perhaps the most surprising and effective strategy to date has been the hefty and coordinated economic sanctions implemented across the West. Joining us to talk about the impact of these sanctions is Peter Martin. Peter is the business and economy editor for The Conversation, a visiting fellow at ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy and host of the ABC's Economist Show. Peter, great to have you there this morning. Great to talk to you, Evan. And by the way, when you said that uh, this was uh, unexpected, you're certainly right. People are are often um, wise after the event and say, oh, this was always going to happen. But before it was uh, the 27th of uh, February, it was, uh, you know, a bit over a fortnight ago, um, before the... um, unexpected sanctions were introduced. All people were talking about was whether um, uh, the West was going to seize the assets of oligarchs, uh, whether the West was going to uh, have uh, trade sanctions, not allow things to be sold, and whether maybe it was going to deny uh, Russian banks access to SWIFT. SWIFT is like the BSB system that uh, banks use to communicate with each other. Uh, It's basically how money is transferred. And it wasn't even certain uh, that that would happen. Then what happened was something much, much, much bigger, which is probably what you want to ask me about. Yeah, let's talk about that, because in a brilliant article that you wrote for The Conversation last week, you've talked about how the West is implementing financial weapons and in a way that we've never seen before. So before looking at the implications of that and, and what all of that means, can you give us a sense of the size and the scale of financial sanctions that have been implemented and, and also how this compares to other efforts too? Well, um, what has happened uh, has happened before for small countries, uh, Iran and so on. Russia is uh, different. Its uh, economy is the size of Australia. Its land mass is massive. It's uh, a member of the UN Security Council, a member of the G20. Um, it has nuclear weapons. It's uh, it's substantial. Now, um, um, when you trade, uh, say, uh, in Australia's case, say we sell um, oil, uh, for the sake of uh, convenience, let's say there's only one other country in the world and it's, uh, it uses US dollars, um, it will not want to pay for it in Australian dollars. It'll want to pay for it in US dollars uh, because, um, well, no, look at this this way. If we buy something from the rest of the world, we can't pay the rest of the world in Australian dollars uh, because the rest of the world's got no use for them. Now, it might if it's buying something from us, but um, international trade is done in international currencies. And so Russia... Uh, preparing uh, for such a thing had over seven years since the uh, Crimea uh, annexation, uh, 
in uh, 2014, been building up its foreign reserves, that is, reserves of US dollars and euros, right? uh, and also gold. And it, uh, building them up and building them up at considerable cost to its citizens uh, by every foreign dollar it came in, by not spending it, um, you know, pity about the Russians' living standards, um, and storing this money should it be needed for just such a thing, because if there were sanctions, the rest of the world wouldn't sell to Russia. It doesn't matter. We've got all of these foreign dollars. We've got all of this gold. Uh, We've got all of these euros. If um, uh, the currency uh, collapsed, they could use... uh, the ruble collapsed. They could use foreign dollars to buy the currency to prop it up. Um, And they built up $630 which is... As I said, a doubling. Extraordinary. Um, they sort of made one mistake, although it's an understandable mistake. Um, they kept most of it in foreign banks. Now, this is a bit like... Um, uh, it, it's a bit like us assuming the banking... Assuming if we put money in the bank, we can make a withdrawal. Yeah. As we always can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what the... Uh, West did, uh, you know, France, Germany, Italy, uh, UK, uh, US, was to say uh, unprecedented. It's never happened before. Look, we know all about how the financial system works, which is uh, banking. You can always get access to your money. Sorry, you can't. Um, up to, not all of it's offshore, $630 billion, uh, that Russia had at considerable pain uh, built up to support its currency, to be able to buy things from the West, even when the West wasn't buying things from it. Uh, sorry, you can't get access to it. And by the way, that includes Australian um, dollars uh, in the sense that uh, there's uh, it's uh, money and bonds, which are sort of loans. There's apparently eight billion of US uh, of uh, eight billion Australian dollars that uh, Russia uh, holds, which uh, it also can't... It's never happened before. It is as if someone Mm. had turned off the water or turned off the electricity. And the only reason you wouldn't expect this is because it's the kind of thing that would never be done. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you've written that this approach represents a, a significant pivot for what has indeed defined the West, and that is the sanctity or the idea of the sanctity of international trade and, and, and open markets. And it's quite quite phenomenal how the world and world markets and underlying principles have just been turned on their heads in the space of a few weeks. It is what has given us prosperity. If you look at... Um, uh, the world. Go back, uh, you know, seeing as we're talking about floods in Queensland, go back a thousand years, meant to be a one in a thousand year flood, go back 2,000 years, go back 3,000 years, you'll find that living standards more or less remained the same until about 1870. That's very recently. That's just before the century we've just had, right? Yeah. Um, And what changed at that time was... um, it wasn't inventions. We'd had uh, agriculture develop. We'd, we'd had things that um, sort of improved our productivity. But every time productivity improved, um, population uh, grew and living standards didn't increase. Uh, what caused a super takeoff in productivity at that time was shipping, the ability to trade, 
right, which we've uh, cut off, um, and the rule of law. And you saw the country's uh, property rights, so um, patents. So if you invent something, you actually get to use it and the police will stop someone else from stealing your idea or stealing, uh, in, in the case of the rule of law, stealing what you make. Um, these changes, they're, um, they're sort of... I don't know what you want to call them. They're intangible. You can't touch them. But they're really big changes that happen to happen at about the same time. And from that time, if you look, at a, look on a graph... Uh, prosperity, um, you know, I'm talking in the West, but it was the West that introduced these things. Um, living standards just took off. And they've taken off in China uh, later on uh, for the same sort of reason. So the thing that underpins, has underpinned our prosperity, our enormous prosperity compared to what we had, um, is I suppose you could call it trust. It's that you, if you do something, you can trust that no one will take it from you. If you put money in a bank, you can trust that you'll be able to take it uh, back. If you pay for something or buy something, you can trust that you'll be able to get what you bought for. In the case, just a minor case, those $8 billion, I know it's not much in terms of $630 billion US, those $8 billion of Australian bonds that Russia owns, it's not even getting the interest on them. Oh, dear, We're yeah. paying it, by the way, yeah. uh, so as we don't default. But the uh, the sort of central bank clearing houses in Europe aren't passing it on. So every floor that we built up, uh, and it's trust that has made the system uh, work, we've uh, ripped away. And what the long term consequences of this will be, I don't know. But uh, it is likely that uh, future Putins, you know, may, let's say there won't be one, uh, will not have the trust in the system and because of that it's likely that the system will never work as well as it has. Peter, you talked about living standards and we know that in Russia that's where we're going to see the most significant impact on on living standards and I'm, I'm wondering whether you could provide a bit of an assessment as to what sort of impact do you think the sanctions will have A on, on ordinary Russians and then B also the oligarchs who rule the joint? Massively higher prices on ordinary Russians. Um, I, when I was looking into this earlier, I was sort of optimistic, if you can be optimistic about crushing people's you know, ability to buy food and, uh, and, and so on. Um, but the more I listen to from people on the ground, um, you know, I'm talking podcasts with journalists and so on, um, who, you know, live in, still in Russia, um, the more that it doesn't work like that. That is, uh, Russian people have been through lots and it doesn't translate into wanting to, um, you know, overthrow the government or anything. So, um, but what it does do for what it's worth is build an awareness. So it used to be that uh, Russian TV was showing the normal programs, nothing out of the ordinary. The news would mention an operation uh, in Ukraine, that's all. Um, but it's, uh, it's what uh, one journalist described as the battle of the fridge versus the television. The fridge is telling you one thing. I can only get half as many, you know, buy half as many things as I could, um, whereas the TV is telling you everything that's normal. So it's sending a message that things aren't right. The other mechanism that... Um, 
these sanctions might work is uh, making life difficult for oligarchs, for the people who are sort of in Putin's, you know, concentric circles further out and close in. Um, they have... Uh, they educate their children abroad. Can't do that anymore. Their assets have been frozen. They like to leave, you know, for their foreign villas for holidays. They can't do that anymore. And uh, the, the, the company they run you know, probably run uh, only at a distance in the sense of creaming off the money, uh, will find it very hard to make uh, money. So their living standards will be down, which is a sort of cold way of saying it, and maybe they'll want to overthrow Putin. The most likely um, mechanism is that Russia will run out of the ability to supply its war machine. So uh, machines break down. You can repair them, but often you need foreign parts to repair them. You can't get access to the hundreds of billions of dollars you put in the bank, foreign banks, for precisely this purpose. Um, that makes it harder. So that uh, slows down how long Russia, or, you know, shortens how long Russia can last. Really, really interesting assessment there. And then with Russia being cut off from the international financial system, you've written that China will be keeping a very close watch and it's likely to move away its assets from Western banks in the same way that we now effectively have two internets with a whole internet system that's been set up and, and walled within a, um, parameters of, of China. Do you think we're going to move to a point of potentially even having two opposing international financial systems? Yes. We will never... Yeah, not necessarily opposing. Um, it, it's, a bit like, um, uh, it's a bit like having a backup. OK. So, uh, you know how... Um, uh, farmers in Australia sell goods to Woolworths and, and Coles. Yeah. Um, and Woolworths and Coles doesn't treat them that well. Um, it gives them okay prices. Those farmers also export. And exporting's difficult, and they don't get as much money often as they get from Woolworths and Coles, but they do it so that they can. Uh, so what you'll see is a second uh, financial system, maybe... Um, uh, you know, centred perhaps around Russia and China or around, you know, sort of uh, rogue states, a bit like the dark web or something, that uh, does the same sort of thing and they'll use both so that if one breaks down, they can use the other. Um, will that matter much? Um, I don't know. I, I do know that in what's a very brief period of time, really, you know, say, from 1870 to, to now, you know, 150 years, uh, we've had this glorious period which has worked very well where we've had a common sort of ability to exchange things and complete trust that if we entered deals, uh, they'd be honoured. Um, it served us very well. In many ways, we've lived in, uh, are living in... Um, sort of one of the, you know, despite uh, the odd war, um, one of the very best periods in the history of humanity because of those things. And, um, uh, you know, the extent to which um, the, the, the single financial system breaking down, breaking into two or more, and uh, cryptocurrency 
you know, will have a role in this big centre, which it's going to be a bad thing, I don't know. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show. Finally, it's a public holiday where you are today. How are you going to be spending the rest of today? It's a public holiday where you are too. Oh, that's true. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, don't tell my partner, but I'm going to be working, Evan. I'm a bit unstoppable. Oh, I think you and I are in the same boat today. So uh, we'll keep it a secret between the two of us. Lovely to talk to you. Nice talking with you too. Thank you so much, Peter. Peter Martin there talking about the, well, the revolutionary times that we're living in, the upending of international financial markets and the impact that sanctions are having on Russia. My name is Evan Wallace. It's been a delight having you listening to the show this morning. And if you've been listening on the radio, 855am, great that you tuned in on the dialer. Um, if you've been listening online, streaming on 3cr.org.au, always good to have your company uh, coming out of the phone or um, on the computer. And if you've been listening in the future with a podcast, well, hello to the future. And I hope it's a better world that we're living in from whenever you're tuning into this podcast. Uh, Everything will be online, but you podcasters know this, that uh, <laughs> this information's online. Links to articles from our guests who came on the show today will be sharing that as well too. Um, coming up uh, after the show, more great 3CR programming with Women on the Line. That's uh, an excellent piece of or radio that love catching every Monday morning and I hope you feel the same as well too. Um, we'll be back next week. Um, it'll be a pre-recorded interview next week, or a pre-recorded show, I should say. I'll be um, uh, I'll be away and uh, looking forward to bringing you some good content in um, the absence of being here in the studio. Top of 28 degrees in Melbourne. Take care, everyone. Enjoy the public holiday if you're in a position to enjoy it, and we'll catch you next time on 3CR. the heavy price for COVID? How about healthy, safe conditions at work? More health care, less police powers, a safe world with free vaccines for everyone. Rally Saturday, the 19th of March. Fight for public health and workplace safety. State Library, 12 o'clock noon. This rally was initiated by Workers' Solidarity and rally organisers are 3CR supporters. Keep rising, keep rising, keep rising. 3CR would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.